Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, one and all. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to episode 146 of the Howie Games Part A. And right off the top, I mean right off the top, a massive thanks from me to all you fine folk for inviting the Howie Games back into your world this year. You guys rock. You completely rock. Hope you all had a fantastic break over the December, January period. For me, it's been pretty hectic. A lot of cricket. I mean, a lot of cricket, both on the telly and the wireless. Extraordinary situation for the fifth test. I was crook with COVID and somehow they managed to hook it up that I could call a test match from home which to me opens the door to call test matches from Costa Rica, but that's something we need to sort out as we go. Also, a lot of cricket at home in my part of the world. The Pickle and the Big Penguin have been playing a lot of cricket for their club, and I've also been squeezing in a few matches myself for the Mighty Barwon Heads. And it's brought back to me, when you play cricket, just at club suburban level, how brutal a game it can be. I can't go over the details, but on Saturday, my team was in a position to win, and I stuffed it up for us. Basically, there's no way around it. I cost us the game. Still with me five days later, I know all you people out there that play cricket will understand and appreciate this, how tough a game it is. I've learned a couple of things about playing cricket over the summer, though. One, that unless you're warning, bowling leg spin is basically the hardest thing to do on the planet and has the potential to send you completely around the twist. I've been landing four balls of a decent length, two short ones, bang, bang, 6-6, six, six, none for 12 off the over, no wickets, that doesn't help. I've also learned that when you're over 40, quick singles should be completely, completely ignored because they result from what I've seen from me and my teammates. Calves, hamstrings and runouts. Also, twos at my stage in life should be turned into ones, not the other way around. But then, I know I'm getting a bit off track here, but then you play that one shot that gets you back to training and gets you back to the game. For me, that shot has admittedly been at training, but anyway, what can you do? If you have been having a hit of cricket over the summer or if you've played in the past, get back to it because I think overall it's worthwhile just for the camaraderie and the teammates and the involvement in the local community. But I hope, I hope that when you have been driving home this summer afterwards, you are thinking how bloody good is cricket as opposed to me who's generally been thinking, geez, cricket is a bloody horrible caper. I had a rare day off. I should have gone to the beach. But anyway, I digress. The Howie Games this year, this is the plan. We are going to continue on as per usual, a player profile and a full episode rotating every Thursday with a couple of artist series thrown in throughout the year. You all really seem to enjoy the artist series, got a lot of positive feedback, so we'll stick with that. There will be the odd Howie hotline, more of that later in the episode. There's another podcast project floating around that Das has been involved with that we've recorded a couple of pilots for. I think it's got potential. I think it's a different sporting concept. So hopefully we just need to find enough time to get that one done and get it out there. I'm excited about it, so stay tuned on that one. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key find out by and by. Now, 2021 was the biggest year for the podcast in terms of listeners, which is fantastic, and downloads, which I really appreciate. Again, thank you. But if you could all do me a favor and just tap a friend or two on the shoulder and say, have you ever listened to the Howie Games, if you like sport, because it helps us to grow the show and get more guests on. So basically, we continue to grow and grow and grow and the podcast can continue. That'd be fantastic. Just give a couple of people a heads up. Okay. 
Enough of this. Let's get to the first guest of the year and what a guest she is, an athlete with the drive to succeed like few I have ever met, Yana Pittman. The two favourites going away from the rest of the field now and Yana Rawlinson looking really good, the former world youth and world junior champion. In track now by Pachonkin, and Pachonkin and again is Rawlinson, almost stumbles off that last hurdle, but she's got the strength. The Australian is going to come back to retain her title. Rawlinson wins it, Pachonkin is in second place, and Anna Yesin of Poland looks to me to have taken the bronze. 53.31, a brilliant run, a season's best there. Yona Rawlinson, the winner in 2003, champion once again. Now, because I banged on for so long, I know you all just want to hear from the great woman. So in short, this is a story of never, ever giving up, learning as you go, dealing with criticism, strong criticism, of never being satisfied, never being satisfied, and a wonderfully clear and insightful explanation on donor children, which is a complete first for this show. I had the pleasure of dealing with Yana when she was a young world champion, and now some years later, when she is a mother a doctor, and an inspiration to all sorts of cross-sections of the community, I've always found Yana Pittman someone to look up to, someone to admire. I hope you do too. Enjoy the story of Yana Pittman, a person that chooses not to ask why, but instead, why not? So when you search, and then you find, and know just where to go, and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know, mystery, what is to be? Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well, this is fantastic because I haven't seen this lady for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, but she is a star. She's been dominating on the television in my house and she's got some young fans as well. Her name is Yana Pittman. She has lived an incredible life and I appreciate the time you're giving me because I can't even begin to fathom your schedule, Dr Pittman. Oh, thanks, Howie. It is a busy life these days now that I'm at the hospital so often, but uh, it's a good one. I love love my post-sports life. It is so busy. Obviously, being a doctor, four kids. That's right, for now. (laughs) Reality, for now, and we'll get to that. Reality TV, you're doing media. How good are you at time management? Obviously exceptional. Look, I'm, I'm not bad at it because I do believe in the whole give a job to a busy person and it will get done. But I've certainly got to make some priorities, uh, like realign my priorities in the coming years because to do the specialty training that I want to do in medicine, I'm going to have to back off because I'm not going to be able to fit it all in. So I've probably come to a point in my life where I now need to make some really tough decisions over the next few years and to ensure I actually come out successful rather than sort of flopping and flailing around at a lot of things. Well, you are not a flopper and flailer. If there's one thing I know about you, you're not a flopper and flailer. Let's talk about being a doctor. I have a, a sister who is a doctor. She's uh, specialised in emergency medicine. And I saw 10, 15 years ago the level of study required. What type of doctor do you want to end up as? And what are you doing at the moment? Well, I'm doing, I'm very lucky that even as a junior now, so I'm two years out of medical school, I'm already in obstetrics and gynecology most of the time, which is what I want to do. So women's health, birthing babies, women's cancers, things like that, infertility. Uh, ED would be my second option. So you've seen that program. It's, they're both equally difficult. Um, I'd say babies do like to come in the middle of the night um, and the roster's pretty cranky at times. So it's probably a little more difficult to fit in with a lot of kids. So at this point, ED's looking nice, but I really love women's health. I just love it. How many babies have you delivered? 
Oh gosh, I wouldn't even know now. So in medical school, I was counting, like, you know, when you see certain, yeah. like I was up to about 30, 35, 36, and then I started to stop sort of calculating that. But now it's very different because a lot of the ones we do as doctors are cesarean sections or complicated births. So a lot of, we, we, get, we miss out on the beautiful experience that midwives get where you have an uncomplicated woman coming in who just jumps up on the, you know, the table or sometimes just sits in the bath and a baby comes out. Hi, Cassandra, my name's Yana. I'm one of the doctors in the antenatal clinic. Um, I think you're 29 weeks pregnant today. Yeah. So I miss I miss that because you got to yeah you got to see a lot of that as a as a junior and in medical school. But these days it's yeah the high risk stuff that you see more. So which does make you a bit more nervous when you're pregnant and having babies and thinking what yeah. you know what happens. But yeah, that's that's the new role for all of us that are uh, blessed enough to be parents. Obviously that moment I've got a couple of kids and you never forget the moment your child is born. It's it's an extraordinary moment and you feel so much love for your child and your partner, but also for the medical team because. They seem so calm and everyone goes through it for the first time. What do you love about it? Like when you hand over that little baby, it must be, Ah, oh, it must be just fantastic. Yeah, and what's amazing in women's medicine is you see some of these older obstetricians that have been around for decades and who are extremely experienced and the joy on their face is still there. It's very huh. rare in this profession that, oh, I mean, they probably quit the ones that don't want to be there because they lose interest in it, but, you know, to actually be the first person to be part of that birth experience I and mean, be part of all the hours of sweat and tears that obviously gone into the pregnancy and then the actual birth itself, very few women get away with it, you know, a 90-minute birth. Most of them have to go through quite a, an ordeal to get there and I don't know, I just, there's something about seeing new life and the joy on people's faces when that little one comes into the room and it unites families too. You know, I've seen these big burly men that you'd never walk past in a night, like you'd cross the road kind of thing in the night if they walked in, bawl mm. their eyes out and, you know, and kiss their wife on the head when, that, when the baby's born. It's just, it's a very humbling, humbling role to be in. I don't want to. I don't want to dive straight into a question like this. There is no real plan to this podcast. But I've spoke to my my sister Madeline about. You know, I go to work. I have I have a bad day. I've stuffed something up in commentary. I might get a couple <laughs> of negative tweets, and that's the end of it. And I think I've had a tough day. And then, and then I talk to her, Yana, and she's in emergency medicine, and people have passed away on her shift. And I've I've had those conversations about how does she deal with that? How, how do you deal with the really really tough side of your job? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a certain personality that goes into those situations. Like we have, I've had a lot in the last couple of weeks um, because I'm getting, sl- you know, I'm slowly getting further on in my career. And most of the time it's, for example, a lady the other week um, had a baby who passed away at her morphology scan. So that's at 20 oh. weeks. So she's gone through all the early scans. She thinks everything's going well. She's told her whole family. She goes for that one at 20 weeks that looks at the brain and the heart and everything to check there's no other abnormalities and the baby's heartbeat stopped. And and then she has to come in and because the baby's too big, she has to birth it, the child. Oh, so. Nice. You know, yeah, and those and those moments are heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And but that's the time that if we have the available time to sit, and as a junior we do, to, to sit there, hold her hand, talk it through, be comfortable in that uncomfortable silence. Um, for me, is actually one the something I enjoy about the job, not the, the sadness, but it's yes. about being there with that woman through those experiences and the the response she has and how she remembers that moment will will touch her for the rest of her life. So you know, it's never going to be easy. But if you can take that burden, even just a tiny bit, and and make her and comfort her through that, then that's the greatest privilege on the on the, on the planet. Obviously, uh, you, you judge a doctor often. The doctor you don't know, uh, Yana, by their bedside manner. How do you go about? A conversation like that, or to make feel someone feel uh, partially okay, and what's the most most likely the most difficult 
part of their life to that point, I would have thought. You can't, Howie. It's about, right. it's, it's about being there to listen and, and let them feel heard and, 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 and some reassurance. A lot of the women in these contexts feel so much blame, so much guilt towards the scenario they've just been through and, and the husbands feel it too. What could have they done differently? Did, did she overwork the last few weeks? Could have I changed some of the things I did to, to reduce, you know, her stress levels? And 99% of the time they could have done nothing differently and it's a, it's a horrible freak of nature trying to, you know, say this little one's not ready for the world. But it's just, it's just a hard experience. So many athletes come on this show. I had Steph Rice on the show not long ago and she talked about a four or five-year period where she did not want know what she wanted to do at the end of her athletic career and it's, it's a common theme on this podcast. Did you always want to be a doctor and how did you go about balancing, well, running and then bobsledding, which we've got to get to, and then doctoring? Like it's seven years <laughs> of, of intense study. Like This is what I'm coming back to about time management. You would have been transitioning while you were still competing, probably at the at the winters, were you? That's when right. Did you, yeah, so yeah, right. Look, um, after after the London Olympics, it was my third Olympics in a row that I absolutely knew was failing miserably. In all truth, you know, having won so many world champs and Commonwealth titles, I always thought the Olympics would just happen. You know, you know, I just, I guess it was. I thought it was just a matter of time. I hoped it was just a matter of time to get on that dais with one of the medals, if if um, if not gold. But you know, I. I I guess around 2012, it became pretty obvious I was just getting too old. I needed a backup plan. So I applied for medical school at that time and chose a few different sports. I thought, I don't want my um, my memory of the Olympic Games to be a negative one. I want to try <laughs> and see if I can find another sport that I, I'm not going to go in as a medal favourite, but that I can go in and actually attend, attend championships and feel the moment, like actually enjoy the experience and actually take, you know, photograph memories of the whole event in your mind so that you could, that was your lasting memory, lasting experience. So I went, I tried bobsled, rowing and um, cycling and boxing, but my mum didn't like that one very much. So I was strongly encouraged. In fact, I remember because I've done some boxing with Johnny Lewis, Costa Zoo's coach in the past and a couple of other clinic, a couple of other um, rings that I've been involved in, but she was like, I will not come and watch you at the Olympics. I'm like, that's pretty, that's crap mum, but okay, fair enough. So, um, yeah, so anyway, the long and short of that is I got into bobsled. So, and around the same time that I accepted the position on the team, I got the letter from medical school saying, if you want to come and, you know, join us and study medicine, then you're, um, you're in. So I had to make a decision and I'm like, just like we were talking about before, I'm like, no, I'm not going to make one. I'm going to try and do both. (laughs) So I did. (laughs) Well, and that to me, and we'll get to where we uh, spent some time together through work in a moment. You, you are always such a driven, determined person. And that came out in SAS. Congratulations. <laughs> My wife and two children have fallen in love with you. Aww. They were team Yana the whole way. What was the experience like? I, I had Pete Murray on the show yeah. recently and obviously he hurt, hurt his elbow. You were, and I say this word with the greatest possible respect, you were a beast. You were, <laughs> you were unbelievable in that show. Congratulations yeah, thank for the, you. The, the effort you put in and the way you came across, which is the real Yana Pittman, I reckon. Look, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of doubt from me initially when I first started thinking I've just had a baby and, you know, even the doubt around the media and how it would be portrayed and ultimately it is reality TV and could you embarrass yourself and whatnot. But it was wonderful to come out with the things that I learned around success and how I actually want to prioritise my family. And it was a completely, a completely different um, what, from what I expected it would to be. It would be. So, yes, it was challenging. Yes, there was parts of it that were exhilarating and extraordinary. Like, I mean, I'd pay millions to go jumping out of helicopters and, you know, <laughs> fast roping into water and stuff. And, and, you know, I even loved the shooting and the guns and everything. Was, I loved everything about it. It was, it was amazing. But um, I think that 
that is has always been my personality. How I used to give something a hundred percent. I've never really done anything. Like, I don't. Cho- I don't do things that I can't put a hundred percent into. It's either it's either I'm all in or I'm just not in at all. So you talked about a potential boxing career, uh, Alicia Mollick and you. <laughs> like that is that is hard TV to watch. Not not for any other reason that it's two people doing something they don't want to do but having to do it. Extraordinary TV. Well, what was it like at the time? We've now 13 recruits left standing. You two, go and glove up. Chief Instructor Ant calls for the last fight of the night. Dual Olympian Jana Pittman against tennis champion Alicia Mollick. It's funny because that was one of, I think, the more, more polarising parts of that show. Like some people yeah. loved that boxing and said this is part of it. And I guess in, even the, the, later in the show when that, that thing happened with Jess and I around throwing sand in your eyes and stuff, it, it's the mm. same thing. You're there to do what you're told to do. You're stepping into their world. So it's not even a position where you can really have an opinion on the task you've been given to do. You either do it or you take give your number and you go home. And it's that was but definitely the one fighting Alicia was one of the hardest things I had to do, mainly because I know Alicia. We've grown up. We were sponsored by the same the same um, contract for many, many years. So we did photographs together and things like that. And, you know, we're both mums. We've both got kids. Fight! Fight! Keep fighting! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Get up! Get in the middle! Let's go! Move! 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 Fight! But we were a great match because we were a similar size athletes, you know, in terms of being both big built women. <laughs> um, and in all truth, I sort of tried to whisper under under my breath to her right beforehand, which she didn't see, and say, "Oh, you know, we, we don't we don't have to go super hard. Just like let's just avoid each other's faces and try to and try to get through this." Um, and I thought she agreed. <laughs> so, I don't think she got the memo. No, to be no, honest, she did not get the memo because she came flying at me like I I was I saw a star. So the first couple of hits. I was kind of thinking, well, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. And then she was like a bull out of a gate. Like I was being knocked to sit, to knock for six. So, um, yeah, like I, I guess at that point your killer instinct does kick in. Fight, oh. back. Fight. Don't turn your back. Turning away from her opponent. Face the target. Number 17, Alicia, is retreating from the onslaught of Yana's punches. And I was literally defending myself and so... I spoke to her afterwards because I, I want to know what changed for her because she she's done a lot of boxing in her career as well before um, before SAS. So I don't know at what point she realised she didn't want to do there. I think maybe watching Pete Murray's arm go down, being the last pair to fight for the night. None of us felt comfortable in that setting, but I completely understand why they did it. 17, keep going. Keep going. What's wrong? Do you want to quit? Use your number. Do you want to quit? Use your number. Use your number. Right, go over and see the medic. Move. So sorry, Liz. Don't be sorry. Sorry, sir. Over there. I'm done. Well done. You did what you're asked to do. Alicia Mollick is the sixth recruit to quit the course. And what was it like? Obviously, it's filmed at a certain time and then the show comes out. It's a tremendously popular show um, and I think it's great for families to watch because we see another side of people that we don't often see. What was reception when you're going to work in, in the hospital <laughs> on the night before he'd been punching on in the ring or jumping in the ice bath and recalling the, the tail of the, the helicopter? How, how was the medical fraternity yeah. receiving it? What was the tail number on the helicopter? What? 284. So... VHELC 284. How the f do you remember that? I've been looking at it. 
Look, a bit of both. I think majority of the time they just saw the resilient side. They just saw that you fought through and you kept going, you never gave up. Um, and I was very lucky that Channel 7 also just portrayed a side of me that that is, you know, caring in terms of looking after the, the other recruits. In, but that for me was, that's my nature to just, the doctoring kept me feeling like it was real and normal. It kept me grounded. I'm like, I'm just going to go back to what I know. Let's just fix every wound I can find and all the splinters can come out. <laughs> because it, there was a lot of downtime, a lot of time where you were just sitting around fiddling with your fingers, doing nothing. Like it was, it was hard. That was actually part of the hard um, was keeping your mind sane when everything, when you never knew the next time they were going to walk in and give you another, you know, horrible challenge or they're going to gas you a second time, all those kind of things. So um, I was lucky that I got a, a nice portrayal from Channel 7 in that respect. So I think because they focused on that side, the medical world was fine with it to most degree. Um, but they have definitely, I have definitely had some great advice that I need to, as I said, prioritise my, my medical career now and uh, no more reality TV. I've got to be a serious <laughs> doctor and and well, show my focus. <laughs> there will be some disappointment in my house, I can assure you. <laughs> no because, no uh, reunions. <laughs> a couple of big fans. When did you start running? When was the first Ooh. time? Was it Little Ath or was it just something you did at school? And when did you think, okay, this is this is fun and I'm quite good at it? Yeah, good one. Um, so, yes, yeah, school. So I didn't do any um, sport. I did dancing apparently, some ballet when I was a little kid, but that was it. Uh, my parents are very hardworking and most weekends we were spent on dad's building site. So he was an engineer builder and, and the time there just wasn't time for us to do sport at, as a young athlete. And uh, so around the age of nine or ten, I was at a school carnival and I won by, you know, by a couple of couple of metres and mum was like, oh, she's pretty good. So I went, and then you just progress through state and, you know, zone, region, state and whatnot. Um, and dad, my father would take a day off his work. And as I said, he's a busy man. He never had weekends <laughs> off, worked Christmas Day and everything to come and watch me run at the athletics track. So to me, that was the goal. I'm going to make dad take a day off and spend, you know, spend time with me. Um, and so that's how I started running. And then, you know, little A's popped in obviously from there. And probably by, by the time I was about 14, I realised that this was a career if I wanted to pursue uh, that could be, a, you know, an Olympic level or at least an international competitive career. Back to Yana in a moment. Next up on the show, one of three athletes, one of three, depending on what happens in the recording studio in the next week, it will either be an athlete who was the first Australian to ever win their chosen event, an athlete who is in the top five annual Australian sports money earners, or an athlete who is just getting started in their career after fighting a really serious health battle just to get to this point. Next Thursday's player profile will reveal all. Now, it has been a big, big summer for many of the guests who have kindly appeared on the show. I always keep an eye out for people that have been on the show, what they've been up to, how they've been progressing, whether they've retired, whether they're still competing, etc. So, a bit of a rundown in about the last... Eight weeks? Episode 12, Ange Postacoglu. Well, Ange has turned Celtic Football Club around. They gave him stick when he signed. (laughs) They're loving his work now. I reckon we need to get Ange back on. Episode 43, Sam Groff has announced he's going into politics. Good luck, Sammy. Episode 53, Justin Langer. Now, Justin oversaw a World Cup and Ashes win, then, well, resigned. Not that he was given a viable alternative. Jeez, what has happened with that situation? What a debacle. Anyway, episode 145, Mitchell Johnson led the outcry about the situation with JL. Episode 65, Elise Perry. And episode 87, Elisa Healy won the Ashes. Episode 70, Nathan Buckley. Bucks went into the jungle and showed he's all class. Episode 74, not a good one, this one. Big Joe Ingalls unfortunately did his knee. Hope he gets well soon, the big fella, and we see him out on the court soon. Talking about on the court, episode 99, Lauren Jackson, the GOAT, announced she was going to play hoops again. How good for LJ and for her kids to see her in action. Episode 127, Dylan Olcott was named Australian of the Year. Fair enough, too. What a legend. As I speak, 
episode 104, Scotty James, and episode 131, Sean White, are set to go head-to-head on their snowboards in the Winter Olympics. Episode one of the Artist Series, interesting one. Paul Kelly wrote a song about Usman Khawaja after his twin hundreds at the SCG, which he did send out to the world. He's also written a song about Ash Barty, which I don't think he has released, but I hope he does because it is a cracker. And then, to finish it all off, in one of the most remarkable sporting performances I have ever seen, episode 117, my favourite athlete of all time, Kelly Slater, just six days short of his 50th birthday, Kelly tackled monster five-metre waves at Pipeline and won the Pipe Masters for the eighth time. Roll the highlights in there, Dust. Men's champion for the Billabong Pro Pipeline, about to be crowned. You're going to see a lot of emotion out of Kelly right now. And just like that, the greatest of all time is back on top. Kelly Slater, a huge victory at the Billabong Pro Pipeline 2022. Don't even throw out the R word. This guy's not retiring. He's on the top of his game. Kelly Slater is back. That win was 30 years, 30 years after claiming his first win at Pipe as a 20-year-old. Think about that. 30 years at the top of his sport? Amazing. Okay, as a result of that, I thought I'd play you some of Kelly in episode 117 with his advice to children. Well, you have to be completely enmeshed in the passion you have for that thing. If you're going to be the best at something, you've got to be more passionate than anyone else. You've got to be obsessive about it. And if you're not, you're not going to be the best at it. So that's, that's probably square one. Um, are you that in love with, a, with that thing that you're going to make it your life? And there's nothing better than making the thing you love the most be your job. And... Um, Um, And what you have to offer that is different than everyone else is that you're different than everyone else. And so you have to do it your own way. You have to, you have to not, you can be inspired by other people, what they've done, but you can't try and emulate someone else to the nth degree. You have to, if you're going to bring something new and inspiring and different, you got to do it uh, in a way that no one else has. And that's, doing it the way you know to do it, not someone else told you to do it. And, um, you know, so that's that's the beauty each person brings is something unique. And um, that's why you're not someone else. Let's get back to Yana. It, 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 it kicked off pretty young for you. I was looking back at uh, Yana Pittman on YouTube <laughs> and the first thing that popped up, I reckon it's 2000, so it's the year of the Olympics. Santiago in Chile, is that a world championship and you've won the 400 flat and the hurdles from behind um and you looked a baby yeah so young (laughs) so young (laughs) that was a big year because I went to the Sydney Olympics as well and I remember just being so young and and naive like had really no idea what I was doing and the only reason I reckon I felt even remotely comfortable was because it was in Sydney and it was 30 minutes from my house so it just felt like I was going to my own warm-up park and I don't fully think I comprehended what what I was doing, you know, the reality that you went to Olympics at 17 or 16, 17 was, was amazing. But the World Juniors, that was my that was my playground. I was ready for that. We trained the entire year to try and get a gold there. Uh, and yet again, the story continues. I had to pick one of the events and it came right down to the night before I had to pick and I couldn't pick, so I did both. So <laughs> so you were going to have to pick and you did yeah. both and won both. Petman coming up to the last flight of hurdles. Dion closing. 
Pittman and De Jong, De Jong closing fast, but Pittman's strong. Pittman holding on. She wins the double. De Jong in second place. Yes. So I wasn't supposed wow. to. I wasn't supposed to run one. I was supposed to run one or the other. And I was having <laughs> a disagreement with my coach. She wanted me to run the flat four, and I wanted to run the hurdles. So my original plan was to run the heats of both, and then see where I, which one I was going to have a better medal chance in. And I found out after the race that once you've run the heats, if you don't run the final, you forfeit all your races. So all of a sudden, I had to run it all. <laughs> the impulse is transferred along the muscle fiber. Negotiating the final school year is challenge enough for most seventeen year olds but not for Jana Pittman. She's also fitting in the Olympics. I think it'll be the biggest year of my life. Obviously I'm trying to do medicine so therefore I have to work really hard in my HSC and also the first Olympics in front of your home crowd is just going to be awesome. So what was Sydney like as a 17-year-old? I always love talking to uh, Olympic athletes about the food hall and the experiences <laughs> and the people they see, but as a 17-year-old, as you said, it's in your home home country which makes it easier look back as a 17-year-old Yana Pittman at the home Olympics. It was a bit surreal because it didn't, it didn't feel like an Olympics because, you know, mum and dad dropped me off in the, you know, in their Holden Commodore and then I got in <laughs> and, and back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, I was rooming next door to Kathy Freeman, which was pretty special. So oh, wow. I, I mean, some of the time she wasn't there because she was obviously doing media commitments and whatnot. But uh, they, they, we definitely have the stories of the enormous, you know, six foot, seven, eight basketballers down to the teeny tiny gymnasts that are just like it's the, it's, it's the, it's the Olympics of freaks basically where all yes. such phenomenal athletes but of every shape and size and uh, and in many respects I think that's what's beautiful about the Olympics and it's why we love it more than just the world championships or you know an event which doesn't have multi-sports in it because it really is the coming together of nations and, and sports as you know every four years and, and it was amazing like it was brilliant to be a part of and and yeah, I'm very, very lucky that I qualified at such a young age to go and experience that in my home country. Now, this is where it'll get tough, though Pittman's pretty strong. She got over the second last reasonably well. Hemming's clearly in front of Tara Shook and Pittman. She's having trouble at the last Pittman. Now she has to go. Is there anything left in the tank? Hemmings goes through. Tara Shook second. Pittman third. So I think you finished third in your heat, so you just missed out on progressing. And, and at that stage... You know, you're a young girl, but a couple of years later, Manchester. I remember covering it for Channel Seven back in a in a um, in a car park in South Melbourne. I didn't get on the <laughs> really? plane to Manchester, and you all of a sudden became a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, and the profile started to grow at that stage, Jana. And that's when people start talking about, you know, this girl's a potential Olympic champion, etc. Yeah. yeah, much of a life changer that Manchester. Pittman's taken the lead. Danvers down in lane two. Jana Pittman leads from Debbie Paris. Leads by two meters into the stretch. Pitto's in fifth place. Pittman about three metres in front. She was rough there. Danvers is coming home hard. Two to get over. Pittman leads by four. Five metres over Paris and Danvers. Stumbles a bit at the last. Gets over it. She's home. Danvers falls over. And Pittman's away. And the 19-year-olds get a win brilliantly. Manchester and World Champs, the two years, 2020, so 2002 to 2003 was where it all, all happened for my sports career. And, I mean, both times, both championships I wasn't supposed to win. So in the 2000, and these names people won't know in Australia, but in 2002, Dion Hemmings was the Olympic champion from Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and she was there, or was it Sydney? She, she might have, she won a medal in both. But anyhow, she was she was in the lane outside me in my heats and we were thinking, well, there's no way you're going to win a Commonwealth gold medal against, you know, an Olympic medalist. Um, and then she pulled out of the final. So 
with an injury. So all of a sudden there was, it was an open field. Anyone could win. So I took advantage of that and I was a very gutsy young runner anyway. So um, I gave that a shot. Same thing leading into the 2003 World Championships. Yulia Pechonkina from Russia had mm. broken the world record five weeks before the world titles. And thankfully she didn't get injured. I won off, off my own, you know, off my own strength there. Um, we came into the home straight equal. or I think she was actually quite a bit in front and, and I managed to, you know, come over the top of her on the line. So it's different because I think those experiences, there are, is no pressure, Howie, because you, you're not supposed to win. So oh, don't get me wrong, I was going to medal. I knew I was going to get a, bron- a silver or a bronze, but, um, and, I, and my coach said, oh, I knew you were going to win gold. But I mean, like, come on, Phil, <laughs> he's my coach <laughs> at the time, you know. <laughs> You can't. You never know outcomes in big performances. Like it's so mental down at that point to to know who can thrive in those in that environment and who can't. Um, so, but that's where it changed for sure. Because all of a sudden, um, you know, the kid that was a bit odd and a bit quirky was in front of the camera, and I didn't understand that period very well. All I thought about was, wow, I'm going to go from being a dork to being popular. This is like <laughs> this is like the best thing on the planet. Yeah, it didn't turn out that way necessarily, but um, yeah, it was definitely the beginning of my career. Before we get to Athens. Tell me about running a 400 hurdles. Everybody says that the four and the 400 hurdles are the two hardest events you can pick. So, of course, (laughs) Yana Pittman picks them both and competes in them both. What's what's the key? Take me from when the gun goes off to you across the line about physically what's required, when it gets hard and how you push through it. Yeah, and I I think that's where you can almost mix medicine in there a little bit. But basically it's an event like the 200-metre butterfly um, that is an anaerobic event that run, that you run out of run out of um, oxygen for, so you, your your body can't run at that capacity at that speed for that long. So, okay. four hundred meters is all about running without oxygen in that sort of cycle for as long as you can, and then holding on while the lactate or pyruvic acid back in the day that people call it builds up and tolerating that. So for the last hundred meters, it genuinely feels like your body's giving in. It feels like you're going to die if you've run it well enough. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of people that go out there and have a jog around the park and don't ever feel that. But a lot of us will have to break what we call our pain threshold with about 50 or 60 to go. And some people can and some people can't. And it's just a matter of trying to run through that complete and utter exhaustion. And and your body is literally without oxygen. All the cells are fighting you. So... For me, actually, Howie, I find the hurdles easier than the flat four because there's something to concentrate on. So there's a lot a lot in your mind goes. With, with 80 metres to go and you're dying, you have to somehow keep going, whereas with the hurdles, all you're doing is concentrating on the next barrier in front of you. And then after the race, the vomiting is 10 times worse than the flat four. But in the moment, it's probably an easier event. So with 50, 60 metres to go, and you, you've explained it beautifully and, and the, the, the lactate comes in and, and your body's saying no, what's in Yana Pittman's mind to keep saying yes? proof of the pudding. Like it sounds really bizarre, but it happened when I was very young. I was racing, I think a couple of times I've run against people like Kathy Freeman and Nova Paris Nebone one time as well, actually, at the at the Olympic trials in Sydney. Um, and I remember getting to sort of 50 metres to go and not wanting to lose my spot in the relay. And I was it was borderline. So there was a couple of us all around together and thinking, I have to keep going. If you pull back here, you're going to lose the race and you're out. And all of a sudden I just realised, even though I was in so much pain, I had, I had another gear. 
So I just went into that sixth gear and it, and it worked. And as a stomach roll, afterwards I was beyond sick, like really sick on the ground for a long time. But I realised I'd prefer to be like that and then be really happy with the outcome. And so a couple of times I pushed that theory and that threshold and eventually my body got used to it. So it automatically would break that pain threshold if I needed to. So when you talk about being sick and vomiting, you're uh, very obviously qualified to answer this. Why does your body react to that uh, in that way? Medically, why do you vomit when you've pushed yourself to that point? I think, it, I mean, I've got to try it in layman's terms as much as possible, but yeah. it's, it's poison. So it's literally the, so the pH in your body becomes so acidic that oh. it, you, you throw up any type of, it's basically revolting against the, the acidity and the pH you've taken to. So like an average person, I reckon, lactates, if they push themselves really hard in a gym session or something, would probably get up to about 10 or 12. They used to take lactates of us in training and we could get them up to 22 and 23. Now, if I injected that amount of lactate into you, you'd probably die. <laughs> Maybe not yourself because right. you're sporty, but someone who's well, not had any. But yeah, inject it into me now and I would die. <laughs> so, so this is your body expelling it anyway. As much as you can. And you're just sick. Huh. Yeah. So I don't know. It's funny because I'm, I'm not sure that the lactate would actually build up in the tummy. It's in the bloodstream. So, I mean, you, you might more than likely if you did a urine test, for example, you'd see a very, very high level of acidity in the urine. Um, but it's, it's not for the faint-hearted. So you don't want to push your body like that very often. And is it literally as, from the start... Is it as hard as you can go or is it 95% or in the 400 flat or the hurdles, are you literally doing your top no, speed as soon as you can? You, you flat out for the first 100 and then you go into a cruise control mode, but it's not cruises in at 80%. You're right, you're cruising at about 98%. Um, and then about well, probably the top bend, so like that's 350 metres, uh, 250 metres into the event, then it's from there onwards. So, you know, if you do not hit your 300 to 400, so when we used to watch, when we watched Kathy Freeman win the Sydney Olympics, for example, when yep. she got to the 200 metre mark, that's when she made her move on the field and that's where she won her race. So there's very little to do in the last 100, especially because most people are broken mentally by the time they get to the last 100 if you're that far off in front. And because she made such a fantastic bend, she fought through all of that pain, she whipped off the, off, off the last 100 and, and, she, and she won, you know, won for Australia. So she's a great example of watching how the mechanics of a race can set you up to win or actually you can lose with them. And when you're crossing the line on on your two world championships or your your, your two Commonwealth Games gold medals, etc., all the races you've won, when you cross the line first, what does that do for Yana Pittman? A bit of both. So if you do a good job, the elation and the endorphins kick in and all of a sudden it's like the lactic just gets like sucked out somehow into the stadium because <laughs> um, it, it, it's brilliant. So, and it's funny, it can go two ways. So, and it's happened both ways. So I remember when I won the World Champs in 2003 and Commonwealth Games in 2006 in front of a home crowd in Melbourne, um, I was, you know, your body's dying, but it only took me 100 metres before I could jog the rest and say hello and thank you to the crowd. So much uncertainty in the last three months. We shouldn't have worried. She was a certainty. Yana Pittman first. It's gold for Australia. Whereas after 2007, stupidly, I was thinking about what I could have done differently in the race. And I'm like, <laughs> I could have broken the world record if I hadn't have started this hurdle, if I had have attacked this differently. So it, it's, it's, it can go either way. Even the greatest athlete on the planet will find something in their greatest performance that they still did wrong. And that's where they know their improvement comes from. So, and you think you've just got to be celebrating in that moment. Surely you'd just be so happy and you've just won the world champs and whatnot. But you know, that's, I guess, where, where, where a true champion comes from, where they can find fault in something and therefore improve on it. And did winning fulfil you? Did it drive you? Was it the be-all and end-all or not? I'd probably have to say then, now, probably not, but back then it must have done because that, that's yes. why I raced. 
That's why I, I remember going to training and you'd have, again, you'd have to, to be able to run 400 metres, you have to train the same way as you race. And we would have one session a week that I used to like struggle to sleep the night before because I knew how hard it was to go and do. Actually two sessions, two like that, both always on a Tuesday morning. So they did the same thing. <laughs> Um, it was just so awful. You would, you would, yeah, it was awful to, to even the preparation for. But you'd get to the bottom and maybe you had one rep to go and you knew you were going to be beyond tired at the end of this, this rep and you would think about the race, about winning. So that's exactly where your mind would go to is I'm going to do this because I want to win. And you would remember the feeling of the Australian anthem and the, the medal and the standing on the dais and the, the euphoria that came with that winning that moment and that's what make you push in training, definitely. And what were those sessions? Like give me a very brief rundown of what a horrible Tuesday was. Uh, so one of them was three six hundred, so six three hundreds. So you run three hundred meters, and people probably won't get this, but you have to run it in around forty one, forty two seconds. So you're running oh. really fast for a woman. That's for a boy. That'd be like thirty five, thirty four, thirty five seconds, and you have three minutes only, and you do them six in a row. So the first three or four are a bit like jog, jog, this is really enjoyable, and four, five, and six are you usually vomit after number five, and then you have to drag your sorry carcass back to the start line and go again. (laughs) So kids, this is what you want to do if you want to go to the Olympics in in a 400. Now, um, I was thinking about this. You won't remember this. The first time I think I met you was 2004 early in the year and I was working for Channel 7 Sports World as a as a reporter yep. and we'd lined up to do a story with gold medal hopeful Jana Pittman getting set for the 400 hurdles at Athens and we were coming to a training session, obviously a, a sports TV interview at that stage, Jana, where that was six minutes, it was fantastic, yep. but you needed good pictures <laughs> yeah. to base it around the interview. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I reckon you had a tight hammy or something, so um, you gave me a shout and said, listen, I'm not training and I was like, oh, gee, the story's on Sunday. It was probably a Wednesday. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, you said, oh, not much, just going shopping with my mum. I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> well, well, we'll tag along. Oh, no, I'm really. not sure. Do you remember no, this or not? I don't not? remember this. So you went to Richmond with your mum <laughs> and you just said to me you were shopping. And all of a sudden it soon became apparent to me and the great Laszlo Telecki, the cameraman, that you were shopping for bras and undies. <laughs> And, no. And, yeah, oh, I need to find the story. And I remember getting there and saying to Laz, I, I don't know what we can do here. Like every bloke is uncomfortable in the first place when they go into a shop like that oh. with their partner. I'm so, so sorry. So your mum was bloody fantastic. She was chatting away and poor old Laz, is, he's bright red and he's filming <laughs> you, you know, just sort of through the shop. Anyway, you did a fantastic interview. Story went to air. My boss at the time, I'll name him, Andy Kay, he absolutely tore strips off me. How can you show an Olympic hopeful, our gold medal chance <laughs> in that light, shopping for a new bra? And I was young and inexperienced. I was like, I, I didn't know what to do, but that was the only pictures we had, Yana Pittman, at the time. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. No, it's not re- your so, fault. Well, it's clearly, it. I don't even remember, so that's how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it, it nearly so got sorry. me the sack. But anyway, well, I didn't, and so we pushed on. I didn't think you'd remember that. No. I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't because that's quite like quite an extraordinary story. But, yes. you know, I think there's there's parts around that time, 2003, 4, 5, where I've honestly blocked it out, Howie, because it was there's parts of it where, I don't know, I made silly decisions like that trying to drag a journalist shopping for underwear like Jesus that's embarrassing but anyway um you know I don't I don't know I don't I don't a lot and that's exactly why I went for another Olympics in a different sport because I honestly have lost two-thirds of my memories from that period like I genuinely can't even remember half the time which is really sad that is the end of episode 146 of the Howie Games part a much much more to come in part b 
Listener.